0: Hi, this is Leon Nafok. You're listening to the Audible original podcast, Fiasco, The AIDS Crisis. I'm here to tell you that there is a new season of Fiasco coming soon to Audible. It's a series about the 1984 shooting of four black teenagers on the New York City subway by a white man who thought he was about to be robbed. The incident turned the shooter into a symbol of vigilante justice and forced a national reckoning over crime, fear, and racism. Fiasco, Vigilante, will be available on July 27th, only from Audible. Visit audible.com slash fiasco to learn more and sign up for your free trial. Fiasco is intended for mature audiences. For a list of books, articles, and documentaries we used in our research, follow the link in the show notes. Previously on Fiasco.
1: It's mysterious, it's deadly, and it's baffling medical science. Every time you'd hear about the epidemic, it was inevitably fatal, dread disease, no survivors, no cure, terminal illness. I'm sick of everyone in this community who tells me to stop creating a panic. I am so
0: scared. If I can't join another man's body to mine, then how am I gay? Liking Bette Midler isn't enough. The rights of people with AIDS to as full and satisfying sexual and emotional lives as anyone else. As a kid, Cleve Jones routinely skipped gym class to avoid getting beaten up by his classmates. In the suburbs of Phoenix, Arizona, being gay made Jones stick out, even though he kept it to himself.
2: I understood at a very early age that I was different from the other kids because they made it very clear that they saw me as being different in a way that was often
0: pretty violent. In high school... Jones grew so desperate that he stole sedatives and pain pills from his parents and hid them under a rug in his room.
2: I was very frightened because I just didn't see any possibility of there being any joy or happiness in my life. And I was getting ready to kill myself.
0: At one point, Jones tried to do some research on what it meant to be gay. But all he could find was scientific literature that classified homosexuality as a mental illness.
2: And it was through these really outdated old psychology textbooks that were in my father's library, which talked about prefrontal lobotomy, electroconvulsive shock treatment, and things like that. So, it was quite a revelation sitting in the high school library one day reading magazines during gym class when I read about the Gay Liberation
0: Movement. It was 1971, and Jones was in his junior year of high school. He had faked an illness and gotten a doctor's note so he could spend his gym period in the library. It was there that he came across an article in Life magazine titled, Homosexuals in Revolt. The piece was accompanied by photos of men with long hair and raised fists, marching through the streets of far-off American cities.
1: The Gay Liberation Movement, the drive for legal and civil rights and for freedom of expression of the homosexual lifestyle. We are just as viable a lifestyle, just as happy a type human being as any other in this country.
0: Jones stole the magazine, went home, and flushed the pills he had been hiding down the toilet. After graduating from high school, he began making his way towards San Francisco. After hundreds of years
1: of people hating, quote, fags and queers, a city has emerged where homosexuality is not only tolerated, but thrives.
2: I remember coming across the Bay Bridge for the first time, and there used to be a coffee roasting plant right there at the base of Market Street, and I would smell the coffee and the fog. and. I thought it was the most beautiful place I'd ever seen.
1: Today, fully 15% of the city is estimated to be gay. In fact, there are more homosexuals per capita in San Francisco than any other city in the world.
2: The environment was electric. Every single day, more of us were arriving. Hundreds a day, young kids, boys and girls from all over the country that had come to San Francisco. Most of us, just a few years prior to that, had really thought we were the only people on the whole planet that felt this way. So it it was just this incredible excitement and this sense of anything is possible now. Anything
0: is possible. Look how many of us there are. Who knew? When Jones moved to San Francisco in 1973, sodomy laws that made gay sex illegal were still on the books in California, as they were across much of the country. When the state finally repealed its sodomy laws in 1975, a city that was already one of the freest places on Earth for gay people became a little freer.
3: The gay subculture has come up with its own conventions. And since no rules exist from the outside, there's a freedom about gay bars that may...
0: As the 70s wore on, a world-historical nightlife scene flourished and expanded in San Francisco as gay men flooded into bars and dance clubs. When
3: you ask why a person goes to a gay bar, here's what you get.
1: I feel comfortable there. I like to have my eyes
4: filled with smoke, and I like to get drunk, and I like to meet people which I usually don't. It's my atmosphere, it's my life. Why else?
0: The city also saw a proliferation of a very specific kind of establishment, the gay bathhouse.
3: While many gays patronize their bars in search of an all-night companion, the gay baths of San Francisco offer what should be a more certain solution. Other men similarly inclined, a safe and conducive atmosphere for uninhibited sensuality, and the expectation that even if your fantasy is not fulfilled, something will be.
0: For decades, gay men have been having sex in secret, often in public spaces like parks and restrooms, where they risked arrest and assault by anti-gay vigilantes. Bathhouses, by comparison, were safe and private. In exchange for a modest cover charge, gay men could walk in and do whatever they wanted. By the late 1970s, the bathhouses dotted San Francisco's gay neighborhoods. Many of them featured live DJs working in a new American art form, disco. The music of Sylvester, the hometown hero known as the queen of disco, could be heard all over town at establishments like the Handball Express, the Cornhole, and the Barracks.
2: A lot of people have, I think, a very skewed impression of what bathhouses were at the time. People imagine them as being dark and scary. They were anything but. The bathhouse I used to go to was, I think it was three floors. There was an enormous swimming pool, a huge jacuzzi. There were saunas and steam rooms and cafe sort of place, a sandwich shop,
0: a rooftop deck. The bathhouses hosted all kinds of events. Dance parties, as you might expect, but also voter registration drives and clinics for STD testing. Some were known for their thematic flourishes, like the bulldog baths, which were designed to look like San Quentin Prison. Others were known for their sheer size. The club baths, which Cleve Jones liked to frequent, was big enough to host 800 visitors at a time.
2: What drew me to the baths originally was, you know, if you live in a cramped, old, drafty, cold Victorian apartment with five other boys, uh, you each get maybe, if you're lucky, four minutes in the shower a day. It was just so luxurious to go there and take a long, hot shower. and, And then, of course, one could have a lot of sex.
0: And we did. There was a brief window when bathhouses were some of the safest places in San Francisco for gay men to meet and have sex. That was about to come to an abrupt end. I'm Leon Nafok. From Audible Originals and Prologue Projects, this is Fiasco.
1: AIDS continues its epidemic spread in San Francisco. 96% that catch this thing are going to die.
3: Reverend Falwell, you've called for the closing of bathhouses.
1: Uh, We pay the price when we violate the laws of God. Gay community leaders worry about such a dangerous legal precedent.
4: We're on the road to recriminalizing sodomy. Politically, it seems like a simple solution. It's a problem, close it down.
0: In this episode, AIDS threatens gay life in San Francisco, and the city's bathhouses spark a confrontation over public health and civil liberties. In 1977, Cleve Jones started volunteering for the campaign to elect Harvey Milk as San Francisco's city supervisor.
2: My name is Harvey
4: Milk, and I'm here to recruit you.
0: After Milk won and took office, Jones worked with him as an intern at City Hall. Less than a year later, on November 27, 1978, Milk was shot and killed by an assassin, along with the city's mayor, George Moscone.
4: Room I'm in the mayor's office. Harvey Milk,
0: a city supervisor, was shot
1: dead at City Hall this morning.
0: Jones had left the building to run an errand. When he got back, he saw his boss's wingtip shoes on the floor, sticking out of his office.
2: There's his body right out the doorway. That. Uh, that was pretty
0: surreal, pretty horrible.
3: This is the body of Supervisor Harvey Milk as it was taken from
0: City Hall. Witnesses that night, Jones took part in a spontaneous candlelight vigil, which was attended by more than 25,000 people.
3: They filled the place the straight and the gay, the unknown and the well known. Governor Brown was here. Justice Later,
0: Jones was there when Milk's assassin was spared a murder conviction and was instead found guilty of manslaughter and sentenced to just over seven years in prison. Jones joined a crowd in the streets of San Francisco to protest the verdict. What began as a peaceful demonstration gave way to violent clashes between police and protesters.
1: In the Castro district, a group of what some called rogue cops broke into a gay bar. Several people were bloodied there and on the sidewalks.
0: It became known as the White Night Riot. It served as a dramatic reminder that for all its advances, the gay liberation movement remained under threat. It's
2: a very crazy night and then the police attacked Castro Street and uh, destroyed some of the bars and beat a lot of people up before they were driven out of the neighborhood.
3: things have gone from good to bad to very bad. Every once in a while, a demonstrator, a protester will come out of the crowd, throw a piece of burning material into a police car and start it on fire.
0: Cleve Jones continued working in politics after Harvey Milk's death. By the 1980s, his years as an activist had propelled him to a job as a legislative consultant in the California State Assembly. One of his responsibilities was to examine bills coming out of the Assembly's health committee. Jones didn't know much about public health policy, so the first thing he did was subscribe to a stack of medical journals. And
2: among them was the MMWR, the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report out of the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta.
0: This CDC report was the same one you heard about earlier in our series, the one that put forward the very first scientific findings on what would turn out to be AIDS.
2: I remember quite clearly the first week of June, 40 years ago, 1981, reading these first few paragraphs describing clusters of homosexual men with Kaposi's sarcoma and pneumocystis pneumonia. And I clipped it out and I put it on my bulletin board and I just had this very bad feeling that this was something serious.
0: Not long after Cleve Jones read the CDC report, a doctor named Marcus Conant asked to meet him for dinner. Conant was a 45-year-old dermatologist at the University of California, San Francisco. He was originally from Jacksonville, Florida, and like Jones, he had chosen to launch his career in the Bay Area in no small part because he was a gay man.
5: Most gay men coming from Jacksonville, Florida, knew that if you were going to be a gay man and not live a lie, you know, get married and have kids and sneak away two or three times a year to go pursue a gay lifestyle, that you had to live in a major city, and that would probably be New York or San Francisco.
0: In 1981, Conant began seeing cases of a rare skin cancer in his patients, Kaposi's sarcoma, or KS for short.
5: Now, it was and still is an extremely rare disease. The average dermatologist in a lifetime could be expected to see one case.
0: Soon, Conant opened a clinic devoted to Kaposi's sarcoma and quickly became the city's go-to doctor for KS patients. Conant was on the front lines of what he believed was an unfolding epidemic, but hardly anyone seemed to be paying attention. It was out of frustration with this state of affairs that Conant sought out Cleve Jones. With his political connections and his work with the Health Committee, maybe Jones could help Conant get funding for research. And, just as urgently, Maybe he could help raise awareness in the gay community of what was going on. Before dinner, Conant took Jones to see one of his KS patients in person. The young man showed Jones a photo of what he had looked like before he got sick. Handsome, smooth-skinned, and muscular. Now, his emaciated body was covered in purple lesions.
5: He had multiple lesions of capsaeus sarcoma, uh, but then had a, a terrible, terrible infectious disease-causing intractable diarrhea uh, with, you know, 20 or 30 bowel movements a day. And he deteriorated very rapidly.
0: Cleve Jones was terrified by what he saw. Afterwards, he and Conant left the hospital and went to the Zuni Cafe, a restaurant not far from City Hall. There, Conant explained his theory of the case.
2: He told me that he thought it was a new or previously unrecognized virus and that did something that crippled the immune system, leaving the body vulnerable to a whole range of opportunistic infections.
0: At this early point, there was no consensus among doctors as to what exactly was causing people to get sick. But Conant told Jones what he believed, that the disease was primarily sexually transmitted, and that gay men were at special risk.
2: There was no drama, there was no theatrics about, he's got a slight southern cadence to his voice, and he just kind of laid it out to me over dinner, and I thought, well, my goodness,
0: we're all dead. After the dinner, Jones was convinced that the gay community was in trouble, and he agreed to help Conant start a foundation that would raise money for research. Soon, the two men were both working towards another, more controversial goal as well, convincing their fellow gay men to change how they had sex.
1: I was worried today that a new and frightening disease, AIDS, acquired immune deficiency syndrome, destroys the body's ability to fight certain illnesses.
0: By the summer of 1982, the mysterious disease causing KS and various opportunistic infections had become known as AIDS. The number of diagnosed AIDS patients was doubling every five months.
1: There is no known cause, no known cure, and more than 40% of the victims have died.
0: As the numbers soared, Marcus Conant grew increasingly frustrated that the gay community was not taking the crisis more seriously. He was especially worried about the city's booming circuit of bathhouses.
5: What was going on in the community was denial. I had people telling me that, oh, it's okay to go to the bathhouses as long as you take a shower after you have sex. I had one guy claim that he just changed the sheets on the bed in his stall at the bathhouse every time he had sex. So just change the sheets and you'll be fine. Now, as long as you have a belief, something that you can hold on to, whether it's scientifically valid or not, is often more valid for people than scientific evidence.
0: It wasn't just that seemingly healthy men were putting themselves at risk. Conant was also seeing patients with visible symptoms of AIDS, who were still flatly refusing to modify their sexual routines.
5: I had a patient. he had a couple of lesions of sarcoma, And he said, in the course of the interview, he said, hurry up, doc, you know, I want to go to the baths tonight. And I said, you're still going to the baths? And he said, sure, I'm going to the baths. And I said, but, but you've got sarcoma, and you know everyone thinks that it's transmissible, that it's getting, going from one person to another. And he said, you know, everybody knows that, so they can take their risk, too. But I'm going to the baths."
0: For years, Conant had enjoyed going to the baths himself. But after encounters like that, he not only stopped going, he stopped having sex altogether. One weekend in 1983, Conant and his boyfriend took a trip to Santa Cruz, where they wandered around an amusement park on the boardwalk.
5: We walked up and down the boardwalk and did all those sorts of things, and we finally got to the roller coaster. And there's this old rickety roller coaster at the end. It's a nightmare because it's still a wooden structure. It rattles. It sounds like it's coming apart when the cars go by.
0: It was while Conant was on the roller coaster that he had an epiphany about the baths.
5: So we get on this thing, and you know, typical roller coaster, we're we, slowly climbing up to the, the peak of the high point. You can see out over the Pacific Ocean. It's just great. And then suddenly you know the bottom drops out from under you and the car goes careening down and my only thought at that point as the thing was rattling and sounding like it was going to come apart was if this thing weren't safe they, meaning the authorities will close it down. It must be safe because otherwise they, they just wouldn't let this thing happen. And as we reached the bottom of the loop, I realized, wait a minute, that's true of the bathhouses.
0: Conant realized that people were going to the bathhouses because the bathhouses were open. If the bathhouses weren't safe, these people figured, someone would have surely closed them down.
5: And of course, that's when I realized I've got to get out of my ivory tower, quit playing the the doctor in the white coat, and get out there and start saying, no, no, we've got to go public and say, Those of us at the university who are seeing these patients, who are looking at this thing every day, who know something about this disease, feel like you need to close down the bathhouses.
0: Of course, Marcus Conant was just a doctor. He didn't have the power to shut down the bathhouses. That would be up to the city government, specifically the director of public health.
4: I'm Mervyn Silverman, former director of health in the city and county of San Francisco from 1977 to
0: 1985. Working for the San Francisco Health Department was a dream come true for Dr. Mervyn Silverman, who moved to the city after years of holding a similar position in Wichita, Kansas. In San Francisco, Silverman found a health department that was well-funded, well-respected, and free to implement progressive new programs other cities might have discouraged.
4: I had about, I think, 5,000 employees and a huge budget. So we did everything from uh, brain surgery to bathhouse
0: inspection. The bathhouse inspections were basically like hotel or restaurant inspections. They were mostly about making sure that rooms and other facilities were clean. Before AIDS, looking after the bathhouses was not exactly Silverman's top priority.
4: Honestly, didn't just, I didn't pay that much attention to it. I think they were regularly attended by probably 10, 5 or 10% of the whole gay community. So it wasn't a
0: major thing, but it was something that was symbolic. It's hard to find reliable numbers on how many people were actually visiting San Francisco's bathhouses. One informal survey taken in 1983 indicates that it was more than Silverman thought, that one in four gay men went to the baths once a week while one in five went once a month. In any event, as AIDS began to spread in San Francisco, Silverman was reluctant to do anything that might make gay people feel unfairly targeted or encourage members of the general public to treat them like pariahs. In 1983, when Marcus Conant and others began pressuring the city's health department to take action against the bathhouses, Silverman was conflicted. He knew the baths were incredibly important to the gay community, not only as gathering places, but as symbols of liberation. As one bathhouse owner put it.
1: Baths are an institution uh, that's specifically designed to allow one to be as free as they need to be.
0: But as the epidemiology of AIDS came into clearer view, it seemed increasingly likely that the disease could be spread through sex. And if that was true, then the bathhouses were potential hotbeds for infection.
4: There were areas that were communal and dark, and sometimes a guy might have sex with 5, 10, 15 people, maybe more, I don't know, in one
0: evening. From a purely scientific perspective, closing the bath seemed like it would almost certainly slow the spread of AIDS. But to Silverman, the work of public health wasn't always as simple as doing exactly what the science dictated.
4: I look at public health the way a doctor looks at a patient. The community is my patient. I don't want to do something in one part of the community that will do damage in another part. It's like, I
0: don't want to treat your heart as my patient
4: and destroy your liver in the process.
0: Silverman wanted to take action on the baths, but he was not going to do it without buy-in from community leaders like Cleve Jones. Jones, for his part, was torn on the issue. He told Silverman that while the bathhouses might be a problem, closing them could create an even bigger one.
2: I think I can still articulately argue both sides of this debate. The people who wanted the bathhouses closed said, look, there's no other place you could look at where there were more opportunities for transmission than a bathhouse. And then the other side said, yes, but if you allow the state to shut down bathhouses, what's next? You could look at gay bars and say, well, there's an incredible opportunity for transmission in any gay bar that you look at and this will erode our civil liberties. At the time, it was very fraught, and a lot of people were very, very angry about it. And uh, I'm not sure what was the right thing to do.
0: Part of the difficulty was that doctors and public health officials like Conant and Silverman weren't the only ones who wanted the bathhouses closed. And some of the loudest voices calling for closure weren't exactly friends of the gay community.
2: I think an important part of the context for this is that you had the moral majority types and the preachers who were calling for closure, and worse, this whole debate was occurring in this context of many people from the radical right, and not just the radical right, expressing really extreme measures right up to quarantine and putting people in camps and tattooing their HIV status on their bodies. So it was not unreasonable for people uh, to fear how slippery that slope might be.
0: The backlash to gay liberation had helped fuel a new kind of conservatism that had taken hold in American politics. That included the creation of the Moral Majority, a coalition of religious groups opposed to abortion and gay rights. It was started in 1979 by the Virginia-based televangelist Jerry Falwell.
1: The high point of the week is an assembly conducted by Dr. Falwell himself. His theme, the need for Christians to become active in politics by turning local congregations into blocks of voters that will unseat politicians who are held to undermine the American way of life. In
0: 1980, Falwell barnstormed across America, delivering fiery sermons to his followers and rallying them behind conservative candidates.
1: We have a threefold primary responsibility. Number one, get people saved. Number two, get them baptized. Number three, get them registered to vote.
0: When Ronald Reagan was elected president in a landslide, Falwell and the moral majority claimed credit for his victory. And in his first press conference as president, Reagan made it clear that Falwell and his ilk would have a receptive audience in the White House.
1: I am going to be open to these people. I'm not going to separate myself from the people who elected us and and sent us there.
0: Falwell enthusiastically condemned homosexuality as a moral perversion. Speaking to reporters in 1981, he warned that if gay people were allowed civil rights, they would become, quote, an established bona fide minority, like women or blacks. Then, in 1983, as the bathhouse controversy was heating up in San Francisco, Falwell used his national platform to weigh in on the issue. He described activity in gay bathhouses as sub-animal behavior, and he called for them to be shut down across the country.
1: I believe that God does not judge people. God judges sin. And I do believe that AIDS, uh, generally caused and believed to be caused by homosexual promiscuity, uh, is a violation, both of them, of God's laws, laws of nature and decency. And as a result, uh, we pay the price when we violate the laws of God.
0: Many in the gay community feared that if the moral majority had its way, they would lose a lot more than their bathhouses.
1: Gay community leaders worry about such a broad and dangerous legal precedent used against one segment of the population.
2: It wasn't a huge leap, in my view, to say that if we allow the government to close down this set of businesses, what's next? Maybe now with hindsight that feels like paranoia, but I don't think it was paranoia at the time. We had just been decriminalized a few years prior, so I think these
0: were reasonable fears. The idea of closing the bathhouses came to be seen as a capitulation to reactionaries, people who cared less about saving the lives of gay people than about rolling back their civil rights. With opponents of gay liberation apparently rallying around the bathhouse issue, those within the gay community who supported closure were treated with special suspicion. One outspoken voice was Randy Shilts a gay reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle who would go on to write the book and the band played on, a seminal early history of the AIDS crisis. With Marcus Conant as one of his key sources, Schultz wrote more than a dozen articles for the Chronicle about the dangers of the bathhouses. And he was fairly open about his belief that they should be shut down immediately.
1: Randy Schultz went after the gay community for a lifestyle that was leading to its own destruction. That did not make him very popular.
0: Even Cleve Jones was called a traitor merely for suggesting in an op-ed that gay men practice safe sex. It was a pretty mild call
2: for other sexually active gay men to curtail our activities, to reduce our number of partners. And, you know, I had people scream at me on the street that I was a Nazi. I had people spit on my face.
0: With all this pressure bearing down on him, Jones decided he could not get behind the idea of City Hall ordering the closure of the bathhouses. Jones reached out to Mervyn Silverman to explain his reasoning.
4: He called me and he says, if you close the bathhouses, I'm going to be one of the ones manning the barricades. And I said, why? And he said, well, because with a city like San Francisco, which is so tolerant and so welcoming and so compassionate to do something like this, will send a message across the country that will have communities instituting or enforcing sodomy laws and things like this, the net effect would be worse
0: than better. Without the support of the gay community, Silverman felt he couldn't close the bathhouses, no matter how uneasy it made him to leave them open. And so, for the time being, Silverman looked for other ways to slow the spread of AIDS in his city.
3: Don't attempt to test it by stretching
1: or blowing it up. Every condom you buy has been pre-tested. Testing it yourself, one
0: approach was to distribute condoms. At the time, condoms were seen primarily as the domain of straight people trying to prevent pregnancy. Getting gay men to use them was an uphill battle. As one bathhouse proponent put it, I didn't become a homosexual so I could use condoms. Under Silverman's direction, the city health department tried to circulate information about how AIDS was spread in hopes that it would convince people to make safer choices.
4: All right, this was the, I think this was the very first AIDS sign that was ever produced at all in the country, actually.
0: Silverman showed us one of the many posters the city health department produced. They gave the posters to bathhouse operators so they could post them in communal areas. It says AIDS is everyone's
4: problem. Protect yourself and those you love. And it had circle with AIDS in it and a line through it. And it said, use condoms, avoid any exchange of body fluids, limit your use of recreational drugs, enjoy more time with fewer partners. AIDS is not spread through casual contact. For your information, contact the San Francisco Department of, of, of Public Health. I mean, pretty benign if you, you know, when you look back at it. But it was the first one of its kind.
0: Silverman's health department wasn't the only group trying to get the information out. Organizers in the gay community created their own public education campaigns. And they were broadly successful in increasing knowledge of AIDS around the city. More and more men were making the personal choice to limit their number of sexual partners by avoiding the baths. Still, Silverman faced mounting pressure to close the baths from San Francisco's straight majority. That included the most powerful person in the city, Mayor Diane Feinstein.
3: I don't believe that this city has any business permitting businesses to operate
4: whose sole source of being is the very activity that communicates
1: the
3: disease.
0: Diane Feinstein had been mayor of San Francisco since 1978. She and Silverman had never butted heads on public health issues, but the bathhouse situation was different.
4: In fact, she was uh, riding with a political reporter from the San Francisco Chronicle in Washington and said, I don't know why Silverman doesn't close the bathhouses. If they were heterosexual bathhouses, he would have closed them. And of course, that got, obviously got back to me from the reporter. And I said, that's right.
0: Silverman would not move his line in the sand. He was not going to shut down the bathhouses without broad support from San Francisco's gay community. I think
4: if you stand back... Politically, it seemed like a simple solution. It's a problem, close it down. The restaurant is insanitary, close it down. But the difference is this was dealing with human behavior. You were not closing it down because of what the building was or whether it was sanitary. You were closing it down because of what people were doing in there.
0: The bathhouse debate came to a head in March of 1984 when a man named Larry Littlejohn took matters into his own hands. Littlejohn, a longtime activist in the gay community, had become convinced that Silverman's education push was not enough. He said that he had personally inspected the largest bathhouse in the city and found that none of Silverman's AIDS information posters were hanging in the locker room. Littlejohn was tired of waiting for Silverman to act. And so he announced that he would begin collecting signatures for a ballot initiative to officially ban sex in the bathhouses.
3: The initiative states that in order to prevent the spread of AIDS and to protect the public health, sexual activities among patrons of public bathhouses should be prohibited.
0: The future of the baths would be placed in the hands of San Francisco voters in the 1984 election. Here's little John speaking to a reporter that spring.
3: I prefer to see Dr. Silverman get some courage and deal with it today. I prefer to see Mayor Feinstein deal with the issue today before more people die. But if we got to wait until November to deal with the issue, the
4: people will deal with the issue.
0: The thing about Little John's push for a citywide ballot initiative is that the overwhelming majority of San Francisco voters were straight. And if it was up to them, the bathhouses would almost certainly be closed. People in the gay community were outraged. Letters poured into the Bay Area Reporter, the city's largest gay newspaper, calling Little John homophobic slime, morality cowboy, and Judas.
1: They say it's a civil rights issue and closing down won't slow the spread of AIDS.
3: They are no more responsible for multiple sexual activities than our bars where people can go and meet someone and have a liaison later in a hotel or in the
0: home. In fact, it would be one thing if gay people decided to shut down the bathhouses themselves. It would be entirely different if the straight majority imposed the shutdown on them.
3: The danger of the initiative, as I see it, is the opening possibility of creating a police state in San Francisco. I, would be appalled at the idea that that police officers could come into a private situation and inspect the activities of my sexual life. I think this is a worse mistake than the McCarthy era, and I think that we're going to live to regret this in, in San Francisco and throughout the nation and the world.
0: Cleve Jones, who knew as well as anyone that reactionary forces could still reverse the gains of gay liberation, saw the writing on the wall.
2: The issue of the bathhouses was going to go on the ballot. And the judgment from a whole lot of people was, that is too dangerous. We cannot have these kinds of sensitive, nuanced, thorny issues of of public health administration be decided by a popular vote in such a negatively charged atmosphere. And that was when the conversation shifted to, let's let Silverman shut it down.
0: Within days, an open letter was circulated and signed by dozens of prominent figures in the gay community. The letter gave Silverman the green light he had been waiting for. He arranged for a press conference to be held the next day. But then, most of the people who had signed the letter changed their minds, having apparently realized that in the eyes of the gay community, they would own the decision to close the bathhouses even more than Silverman would.
4: So they all signed this letter to me and said they supported closing it. Within 24 hours, most of them
0: had taken their names off of it. Cleve Jones was among them. In the end, he was just too conflicted.
2: Sometimes we approach issues where we just don't really know what is the right thing to do. And that doesn't make one a a coward or dishonest. It means that one doesn't know
0: what to do. Mervyn Silverman was back to square one. With no official backing from the gay community, he felt he could not follow through with his plan. The problem was reporters had already been alerted that there was going to be a major announcement. News trucks were lined up outside the public health building. Silverman felt like he had to at least show up and say something. Silverman met with Mayor Feinstein and told her he could not go forward with his decision to close the baths. Then, right before the press conference, he met with the city's police chief, who fitted him with a bulletproof vest. As Silverman's car approached the public health building, he saw dozens of protesters gathered outside.
4: It was bizarre. It was something of, I think, a Fellini movie or something like that. I walked in there, and it was sort of like a haze. And through the haze, I'm seeing people naked, or sort of naked, with towels wrapped around it.
0: Some of the protesters held signs that read, Today the tubs, tomorrow your bedroom, and out of the baths into the ovens.
1: Protesters and many others, worried and angry that
4: after a year of resisting the calls, Director of Public Health Mervyn Silverman had decided to close the baths down. I saw all of this stuff, and I didn't say, hi, Joe, hi, Mary, who the, the various reporters. I just went up, sat down at the desk, and basically said, all of you who think I'm going to close the bathhouses, uh, you know, sit down, forget it. It ain't going to happen. Because of a number of issues, both legal and medical, that are not resolved, I am not going to be making a comment discussing the opening or closing of the bathhouses at this point.
3: Thank you.
1: The decision was popular here. The crowd, ready to burst with anger, was greatly relieved. Do you think that he decided not to do it right away because of pressure from the
2: gay community? Well, i
0: Even though Silverman had backed down, San Francisco's gay community was shaken. Word had gotten out about the leaders who had initially signed the letter in support of closure. The editor of the Bay Area Reporter labeled them collaborators. The gay liberation movement, the editor wrote, was almost killed off last Friday morning by a group of gay men and one lesbian. This group gave their names to give the green light to the annihilation of gay life. The gay community should remember those names well. The role of names became known around the city as the traitor's list. On April 9, 1984, 10 days after his anticlimactic press conference, Silverman took a half measure that seemed to please nobody. Rather than close down the bathhouses outright, he issued a strict new set of rules that mandated increased lighting. The removal of doors from private rooms, and, most importantly, a ban on sex inside the venues. It was enough to convince Larry Littlejohn to withdraw his ballot initiative, which had called for similar restrictions. But, unsurprisingly, when the city sent in undercover health inspectors, they found that people were not abiding by the new rules. And so the bathhouses remained in limbo, with the mayor continuing to call for their closure and gay leaders continuing to make the case for safe sex.
3: We, as a community, are not exactly slouches when it comes to sexual creativity. It is not absolutely essential to go to the baths and stick your butt up in the air in order to get erotic pleasure as a gay man.
0: The problem was that according to the bathhouse owners, even when they tried to give out condoms, most of their customers didn't seem to want them. Marcus Conant, the doctor who had started ringing the alarm about AIDS years earlier, found this infuriating.
3: And so this year, the group that we have to criticize is not the feds, and is not the state, and is not the city. It's the gay community, because the rationalization that is going on in the gay community is absolutely terrifying.
0: This is Conant speaking in April of 84 at a public forum on bathhouses.
3: I will tell you the story of two patients. One is a man that I saw today who continues to go to the bathhouses and have sex. He has capsic sarcoma. Another man is a PhD who has idiopathic thrombocytopenic purple and goes to the bathhouses. And when I said to him, do you tell your sexual contacts that you have AIDS? He says, no. And I said, how do you morally live with that? And he says... Anybody that knows the bathhouse is a damn fool, and I think they've got what's coming to them. Nothing that we as physicians or epidemiologists or nurses or patients with AIDS have done to date has slowed down the incidence of this disease whatsoever. Should we ask the mayor every time we have an AIDS patient die in San Francisco to set off the earthquake siren for 20 seconds? It'll go off every other day. Maybe people will begin to understand the magnitude of the problem. And then by Christmas when it's going off twice a day, and by this time next year when it's going off three times a day, everybody will begin to understand what we're dealing
0: with. Looking back, Conant says he gets where people who opposed closure were coming from.
5: I mean, I could understand their point of view. I can still understand their point of view. I mean, they had fought for years for the rights of gay men, and here we were coming along saying, you fought for it, and now you can't have it.
0: Still, Conant says that he has no second thoughts about taking the position that he did.
5: It's very much like, what is the more important thing? Is it people dying, or is it the economy? Well, as, as with that argument, it's both. But you can't have an economy if too many people are frightened and dying. 96% of them that catch this thing are going to die. And so you need to be, you know, almost draconian in how you approach this thing. You can't just let people make up their own mind when they're not just putting themselves at risk, they're putting the whole society at risk, at least the whole gay society.
0: Four decades later... Conant still finds the idea of using bathhouses as sites for safe sex education to be laughable.
5: Why, why? Why do people go to the bathhouse? They go to get laid. They don't go for a lecture, for God's sake. I mean, quite, quite honest. I mean, you take a bunch of horny guys, and they're going there to get laid, and you want you want some doctor to give them a, a talk about hygiene? Sorry. <laughs>
0: <Just> <laughs> Eventually, all the controversy took its toll. venues, including the hothouse, the Liberty baths, and the bulldog baths, all made the decision to voluntarily close their doors.
3: What is happening is, without them actually legislating the closing of the bathhouses, the politicians are closing this down slowly
0: by discouraging people to come here. Sutro Baths, one of the largest bathhouses in the city, hosted a three-day farewell party, where five employees stood on stage and threw AIDS brochures into a barbecue.
3: Tonight, they burned those pamphlets to protest being driven out of business by what they call AIDS hysteria.
0: If we can't pass them out, the owner of Sutro Baths said we might as well burn them.
3: When we take away the towels, take away the keys, we don't need education to fight this dread disease. We're closing down the baths and the other private clubs. It's out of the showers and into the shrubs. You can sing along on the chorus if you want. On October 9th, 1984,
0: Mervyn Silverman made a decisive move.
3: 14 gay bathhouses and
1: sex shops in San Francisco were ordered shut down by the city's public health director. Through the morning, city health officials posted notices close or face legal action.
0: Silverman had found that 14 of the city's remaining bathhouses and sex clubs were in violation of his rules. So he shut them down completely.
4: Today, I have ordered the closure of 14 commercial establishments which promote and profit from the spread of AIDS.
0: At the time of Silverman's announcement, it was estimated that 40% of the gay male population in San Francisco was infected.
1: AIDS continues its epidemic spread in San Francisco. More cases reported already in the first three quarters of 1984 than all of 1983. Hundreds, even thousands more, may have the disease and still not know it. Some in the gay community say those who use bathhouses for sex will simply go somewhere else. That today's action by the city will bring much controversy, not much cure.
0: That December, three and a half years after AIDS had first emerged in San Francisco in 1981, Silverman resigned as public health commissioner. A reporter questioned him on his way out. How did the public health director feel about leaving his job in the middle of an epidemic? I'd like to believe this is the middle, Silverman answered. My fear is that this is the beginning. By the end of 1984, the total number of confirmed AIDS cases in the U.S. was pushing 8,000. More than half of those patients had already died. Cleve Jones found out he was HIV positive in 1985, when a blood test finally became available. To this day, he's still torn about the bathhouses, which, it's worth noting, ended up staying closed for decades
2: you know, I was ambivalent then, I'm ambivalent today. Did the bathhouse closures result in an across-the-board sweeping denial of civil rights? No. Did the closure of the bathhouses slow the spread of the pandemic? Probably not. With, you know, 2020 hindsight, I wish what could have happened is that the community could have rallied enough and found enough unity to impose our own restrictions and guidelines on how these places would operate. But with hindsight, I would say to you that the behavior that had gone on in the bathhouses continued and it went underground, it went out of the county, it did not go away.
0: Eventually, the bathhouse controversy was no longer top of mind for people like Cleve Jones and his friends. They were now too busy going to funerals and taking care of the sick.
2: And within just five years, almost everyone I knew was dead or dying or home caring for someone who was dying. It it, uh, ultimately would kill over 20,000 people in my neighborhood.
0: Among the thousands of San Franciscans who would die from AIDS in the ensuing years were Randy Schiltz, the Chronicle reporter, and Sylvester, the queen of disco. Jones remembers losing friends, making new ones, and then losing them, too. He remembers familiar faces around the neighborhood, vanishing one by one.
2: There was a mail carrier, a guy I, I never knew his name, but he always wore shorts. He had muscular legs, and he always would wear shorts, and we you know, we'd make little jokes about the mail guy that always wore shorts, and of course he disappeared, and the bus drivers disappeared, and the bakers, and the bank tellers, and just all the familiar faces, your favorite bartenders. Uh, everybody died and, and those who did not were just so uh, locked down in grief and the incredibly hard work of caring for people in the absolute vacuum of any kind of government response.
0: About a year after the bathhouses were shut down, Jones began planning an AIDS memorial. He had an idea for something visual and striking, something that might wake up the country to the enormity of the death toll. He imagined a giant patchwork quilt. On each square would be the name of someone lost to AIDS. Someday, the quilt would be big enough to blanket the mall on Washington.
3: Sylvester oh, no. There's no sun up in
4: the sky, stormy weather
3: since man and I ain't together
0: on the next episode of Fiasco. AIDS threatens America's blood supply.
1: Blood banks and plasma centers may be spreading a new and mysterious ailment called AIDS.
0: Fiasco is presented by Audible Originals and Prologue Projects. The show is produced by Andrew Parsons, Sam Graham Felson, Madeline Kaplan, Ula Kulpa, and me. Leon Nafok. Our researcher is Francis Carr. Editorial support from Jessica Miller and Noor Wazwaz. Archival research by Michelle Sullivan. This season's score is composed by Edith Mudge. Additional music by Nick Sylvester of God Mode, Alexis Quadrado, Joel St. Julian, and Dan English, Noah Hecht, and Joe Valley. Our theme song is by Spatial Relations. Our credits song this week is Stormy Weather, performed by Sylvester. You also heard Sylvester's You Make Me Feel. Music licensing courtesy of Anthony Roman. Audio mix by Erica Wong, with additional support from Selena Urabe. Our artwork is designed by Teddy Blanks at Chips N.Y. David Blum is the editor-in-chief of Audible Originals. Mike Charzik is the vice president of Audible Studios. Zach Ross is head of acquisition and development for Audible. Thanks to the Vanderbilt Television Archive, Joshua Gamson, Louis Niebuhr, and Bryant Erstad. Additional archival material courtesy of KGO-TV in San Francisco. Special thanks to Peter Yassi. Thanks for listening. Next week, episode four.